so many ways to worship our Lord, and, and certainly uh, hearing great music and participating in great music is, is one of those ways. So praise God for that. Uh, church, would you turn in your copy of Scripture? We're going to be in Psalm 85 this morning, Psalm 85 in this Advent Sunday. And if you didn't bring a copy with you, or you'd like to read from a hard copy and not your phone or whatever, uh, you can use your phone. But, but our, we have some ushers that would love to bring you a copy. Just raise your hand and please receive that as a gift from us to you. We love giving away Bibles around here. Psalm 85, verses 1 through 11. And with that, let me, let me pray. Father, thank you for your presence here. Thank you for how we've experienced you already. Thank you for how music quickens our, our conscience to our soul and such that we're, 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 we're put in a place where we, we see you and we respond to you in worship, God. Thank you for your coming on that midnight clear for meeting us in our need and revealing yourself to us. And now, Lord, as we open your word, we pray that you would continue to speak by your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the summer before my high school year, I was full of anticipation and excitement. I'd been dreaming about my senior year of football for a long time. And, and every day in the summer, I was either lifting weights or, or working out, and I was really excited. Uh, my, my teammates uh, were with me, and, and we were looking forward to a great year. Personally, I'd been getting some interest from some college programs that I admired. And, and though our team didn't do as well my junior year as I'd hoped, we had a quarterback transfer in, and he was really good. He was like all state level. And, and so we had uh, uh, this real promise, this real hope of having a great year with, along with uh, several other solid returning players. And, and I was all in. I was excited. And, and, and that's why I was so devastated when we lost our first game. I looked it up this week. You can look up high school sports from a long time ago. Did you know that? I didn't remember the score, but I remember the game. It was against Minot, and we lost 26 to 43. I was so disappointed. I was so frustrated. It was a tough day. But, but Minot was a big school, uh, a lot of kids on the team, and, and we'd had a difficult time playing against Minot, and so it wasn't totally a surprise, and so we were looking forward to the next game. And, and fortunately for us, there was this little school, uh, the smallest school as a part of our conference in a town of about 8,000 people called Valley City, and, and they were up next. And they weren't expected to be very good. Their numbers were way less than what ours were. And and on top of that, it was our homecoming game. And so we were fired up and we were ready to go. And so heading into the game, we, we were really confident. We expected to win. And as a bunch of high school kids, high school boys, we, we acted like it, all right? <laughs> and so for the pep rally on the, on the day of, of that homecoming game, one of my buddies was also a football captain. And, and we also were singers in the choir. And so we thought, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we wore our football jerseys and we sang during the presentation of the homecoming royalty? And, and somehow we got our way into that with the teachers. And, and we were singing Billy Joel's She Got Away, She's Got Away. And, and there we were. And I thought, man, we, we were pretty big stuff in, in this. Everybody was cheering. It was exciting. And we couldn't wait for the game. <laughs> and then the game began. And, and I got to tell you, I don't remember any of the details. I just remember that, that sense of bewilderment as this tiny little school with these guys that were half our size running up and down the field on us. And we lost the game 44 to 14. It was a drubbing, and I'll never recover from it, I promise you. And that was the start of what turned out to be a really sad football season. It was really disappointing. I had such high expectations. I mean, we won a couple of games, but then we lost three in a row, and, and we were knocked out of the playoffs. And, and as desperation turned to despair, it was hard to stay motivated. It was hard to keep working. It was hard to stick together. 
And for me, personally, those college interests never really panned out. I didn't get the accolades that I'd hoped for. And after the season, I never put the pads on again. I created some different padding in my years, but not that kind. And I know what some of you are thinking, okay? I know, good training for a lifelong Vikings fan, right? <laughs> Come on, have a heart, would you? <laughs> no, I don't need an amen to that. Come on. <laughs> But seriously, have you ever been there, you know? You ever had a season of despair? Maybe you're in one right now. Certainly, there are a lot tougher places to be than a tough football season for a senior in high school. Maybe you're in one of those places where nothing's going right, you know, where your experience falls incredibly short of your expectation. It's a tough place to be, isn't it? It's a hard place to be. Let me ask you, where do you turn in your despair? Where do you go with it? I mean, is it to a spouse, to a friend, to a, to a hobby, to a job? Maybe more destructively, to a, to a bottle or to a screen? And see, there, there are some healthy places to turn. Certainly, God gives us gifts and resources and relationships that can be quite helpful in those seasons of despair, and yet some places are quite destructive as well, don't you think? I want to suggest to you this morning that there's a wonderful antidote to despair that has nothing to do with the right cocktail of events and and provisions and even victories in, in football games. Instead, it has everything to do with what God provides for us, for the victory that God and God alone is capable of producing. And with that, I want to turn our attention to this psalm, this Psalm 85. And though we can't be exactly sure of the historical setting of the psalm, we find it in book three of five books in the book of Psalms, and that tells us something. And it's also a psalm of the sons of Korah. That also tells us, and the context gives us some clues. And here's what we deduce. This is very likely a psalm that's set in the post-exilic time period for the nation of Judah. That means that in 586 BC, after Nebuchadnezzar came and, and ransacked Judah, he He destroyed Jerusalem. He he destroyed the temple. He carried off the people back into Babylon. And after they suffered for 70 years in exile, the people are back in in Jerusalem. They're in Judah, and they're trying to reestablish themselves. And it's likely that this psalm was written during that what we call post-exilic time period. And what should have been a wonderfully joyous season, think about it, 70 years away from Marshfield, you finally get to come back, forced, forced distance, right? And you get to come back, and it should be glorious, it should be a great time, and yet their, their, their happiness, their, their joy, their expectancy quickly turned to despair. See, their experience didn't match their expectations. The transfer quarterback wasn't making the difference. <laughs> and by the way, it wasn't his fault we had a lousy season, all right? Solomon's temple, that that glorious temple, that that source of identity for the people of Israel, covered with gold and all of these engravings, beautiful, we've read about it in the Bible reading plan. Friends, that's destroyed. It's no more. It's It's a memory. Enemies are still surrounding the nation and, 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 and threatening, and the people at times still persist in, in the ugliness of habitual sin. They're still struggling. And as these sons of Korah, these, these specialized Levites whose role it is to, to influence temple worship, as they put pen to paper, they recognize the people's despair and, and, and they give it voice. 
And yet, praise God, their, their poem is not just another despairing lament, although there's a beautiful place for laments in the Psalms. But this is not just another despairing lament. It's also an antidote. And I wonder, do you long for an antidote to your despair? Do you long for that? I I do sometimes. And so I want us to read this prayer of the sons of Korah, this this antidote to despair. We're going to start with the first three verses. Listen to this. So this is Psalm 85 to the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath and turned from your hot anger. Church, notice how how the psalmist recalls God's past provisions for the nation of Israel. In the past, God was favorable to the land, verse 1, and God restored the fortunes of Jacob, also verse 1. And see, the antidote to despair is remembering God's provision. It's the same thing that we discussed last week. It's remembering what God has done. (laughs) Remember Dr. James Allman? I love this quote. I thought it was worth bringing back this week. He says, what God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what he'll do in the future, but he's way too creative to do it the same way twice. I love dwelling on that, this this reality. What God has done in the past indicates what God will do in the present and in the future, but he's so creative, he's so good, he's so bountiful that he's not going to do it the same way twice. When we remember God's past provision, we find hope. We have hope. John Calvin says, nothing contributes more effectually to encourage us to come to the throne of grace than the remembrance of God's former benefits. Church, God's former benefits were so very great for the Hebrew people. He was favorable to the land. Remember the land flowing with milk and honey? Under the leadership of King David and King Solomon, the the land enjoyed a a period of many, many years of incredible prosperity. And as long as they followed after God, they experienced God's blessing. And additionally, God restored the fortunes of Jacob. When Jacob went to Haran uh, to be with his uncle, Laban, uh, Laban uh, connived him, deceived him, and and caused him 20 years of, of hardship and grief. And yet God brought him back to the land of promise. God brought brought Jacob back after this period of great wrestling. Let me ask you this morning, how has God been favorable to the land that he's entrusted to you? How's God been favorable to the land that that he's given you? What can you remember of God's provision? Did you drive here in a car? Some of you say, no, I drove in a truck. No, did you drive here in a car? Thank God. Did you have a roof over your head last night? Praise God for that. Did you eat a warm meal on Thanksgiving? (laughs) How about saying thanks to the Lord for His provision? You want an antidote to despair? (laughs) Friends, in the words of the old hymn, count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings. See what God has done. Remember God's provision. That's an antidote to despair, but, but not just for the land. Now, li- listen to verse 2. This gets really good. <laughs> he says, you forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. Church, the people had experienced God's provision, not just for their physical needs, but also for their spiritual needs. 
You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin, praise God. Here here they were, back after 70 years of judgment, 70 years of captivity, and as the people worshipped, the the priests would sprinkle the blood of bulls and goats to remind them of their sin and to remind them that in relationship with God, their sins are covered. They can experience forgiveness. Let me ask you today, what has God forgiven you? How has God forgiven your sin? And of course, our forgiveness comes not through the blood of bulls and goats, but through the blood of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9, 13 and 14, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, you Wisconsinites know what a heifer is, with the ashes of a heifer, if you sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Hence, the blood of Christ is effectual. It does the job. And if you're in Christ, if you put your faith and trust in Him, if you confessed your sin and your belief that He alone is Lord and Savior, then friends, your sin is covered. It's atoned for. The ransom has been paid. Do not despair. Instead, rejoice in your forgiveness. Friends, shame is yours no longer. Jesus took your shame with Him to the cross. And not only did He cover our sin, but also this, verse 3. It says, you withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. There's this wonderful theological term for the turning of God's wrath. And I I can't get by on a Sunday without a, a nerd word or two here, all right? It's the word propitiation. We've rehearsed this at times before in our journey together. The word propitiation, and and specifically it means the satisfaction of God's wrath against sin. The, The satisfaction of God's wrath against sin. Did you know that God hates sin? Of course He does. He's righteous. He's holy. He's perfect. He hates sin. He's angry about sin. And church, God has every right. He had every right to be angry about the sin of the people of Judah. When, when they prostituted themselves to idols, when they, they sacrificed their own children to the, the false god Moloch, when they continued to worship in the high places, even though God said, don't do that anymore, over and over and over, they rebelled against God. They sinned against God. God has a right to be angry with the people about their sin. And so he sends a judge, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. But then after 70 years, here's what's incredible about God. He relented. He stepped back. He said, okay, I'll I'll be angry no longer. He withdrew his anger and he once again restored the people to the promised land. And church, that was then. That was under the old covenant. But listen to this. See, for us who are in Christ, Rather than sending an evil king to bring judgment, God satisfies His wrath against sin through the death of His own Son. For us, God withdraws His anger from us because it's been propitiated, it's been satisfied through the death of His Son. And so if you're in Christ, here's what that means. God's not angry with you anymore. He's not angry. He doesn't hold you accountable for your sin if you're in Christ. Because He's turned His anger against your sin and He's placed it on His Son. Praise God. 
Our, our sins have been atoned for and God's wrath has been satisfied through the death of Jesus Christ. We've got to remember what God has done. We've got to remember the great privilege of being in right relationship with God. You know, some of us this morning grew up and we had parents or, or pastors or priests who constantly reminded us of how awful we were. <laughs> And constantly reminded us, whether it was through direct word or, or through, through more that, that un, unspoken kind of communication that happens in families and in communities, constantly told us that unless we, we followed all the rules, unless we checked the boxes in a certain way, that God was going to be angry with us. That God wouldn't want to have anything to do with us. And they proved it because they lived towards us in that way as well. They always seemed angry. And unless you perform a certain way and, and meet a certain standard and fulfill certain expectations, they would hold, withhold their, their love from you. And it, it left you wondering, now where do I stand? Do, do they love me? Do they care? Does God love me? What's this business about a father? It sure doesn't feel like that if, unless it's like my, my earthly father. Does he care? Friend, hear me on this. If you're in Christ... If you've repented of your sin and invited Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior, <laughs> your iniquity is forgiven, your sin is forgiven, your shame is covered, and God is not angry with you, quite the contrary. Remember that. Don't despair. And then notice how the prayer continues. Look at verse 4. It says, Restore us again, O God of our salvation. And put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? And church, the antidote to despair is not just remembering. It's also inviting God to do a couple of very specific things. Not just remembering, but inviting. And the first thing is this, in verse 4, where the psalmist says, Lord, restore us again. It's inviting God's restoration to, to take place in our lives. Friends, the, the exiles returned to the promised land. They were bewildered. They didn't know what to do. Things were not now as they had been. They, they needed restoration. And see, part of what it is to linger in despair is to relent the, the, idea, to, to, to relent to the idea that nothing ever gets better that I'm just going to continue on this hamster wheel, this dumpster dive of a life that, that I've, I've been given, and nothing ever changes, no matter how hard I try, no matter what I do, I'm always on the short end of the stick. That's despair. And it's true. Some, sometimes our choices lead to irrecoverable consequences, don't they? Sometimes that happens. Sometimes a relationship is never fully repaired. Sometimes we end up with a chronic physical malady that lingers until our death. But friends, that doesn't mean that we're lost forever to the consequences of our sin. Praise God. Joel is another prophet who warned God's people not to stray. And yet, after the years, after the locusts had done their devouring work, they destroyed the land as a part of God's judgment. God said to the people in Joel 2, 25 and 26, He said, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. <laughs> you know what a locust does? It certainly doesn't act in isolation. When a locust moves in in the Middle East, 
and certainly in biblical time period, they, they would come with great hordes, swarms, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of countless insects that would move in over a field and completely obliterate it, devour it. And God says through Joel, hey, I know your life feels like an empty field right now. I know it's a mess. I know you feel the loss, the weight, the pain, but listen to me, God says through Joel, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. God is saying, look, I know I sent them. There's judgment for sin, and yet that's not the final word. He says, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Friends, our God is a God of restoration. He brought the people back to the promised land. I love how James Montgomery Boyce puts it. He says, sin causes us to lose many blessings. It does. These cannot be recovered. They're gone. But, but God can give new opportunities and new blessings. If you're one whose life has been ruined by the locusts of sin, making it a spiritual desert, you need to return to the one who can make your life fruitful again. If you'll turn to God, He will return to you and restore what the locusts have eaten. Praise God. Friend, are you in despair? Cry out to God for restoration. He's a restoration specialist, didn't you know? <laughs> and I don't know how he'll do it. It may not be the same as it once was, but remember, what God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what he'll do in the future, but he's way too creative to do it the same way twice. Cry out to God to restore the years the locusts have eaten. He can do it. Now, and notice how the prayer continues in verses 6 and 7. The psalmist writes, another will you, this time will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Church, restoration has to do with recovering that which was lost. On the other hand, revival is bringing that which is dead back to life. And that's what the psalmist is asking for here in verse 6. Will you not revive us again? And as an antidote to despair, here's the thing. We, we ought to pray for revival in our midst. We ought to pray for it. God, will you not bring us from death to life? It's in your best interest to do so. Dead people, God, don't praise you. We're dead in our sin. We're lost in it. We're without hope apart from your intervention. God, will you not bring us back from the dead? Will you not raise us up to life with you? And if you do, our lips will praise your name. Otherwise, you get none. <laughs> God, restore to us the joy of our salvation. And church, the problem with being in despair is that, that we usually look for solutions in all the wrong places, don't we? But the antidote is to seek revival from the, the only source that produces true and lasting joy, the only source that raises the dead to life. And Charles Spurgeon puts this so beautifully. He says, joy in the Lord 
is the ripest fruit of grace. Where grace is present, joy is the fruit of it. Okay? Joy in the Lord is the ripest fruit of grace. All revivals and renewals lead up to it. By our possession of it, we may estimate our spiritual condition. It is a sure gauge of inward prosperity. Not, not outward prosperity. Not that, not that the fields are all full of harvest and, and not that every event and relationship is perfect around us. It's a, it's a sure gauge of inward prosperity. It's a genuine revival. See, a genuine revival without joy in the Lord is as impossible as spring without flowers or day dawn without light. Where God moves in, He produces joy. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice, may have joy in you? I had a moment this week where I was lacking joy. And as my wife does, she called me on it. <laughs> it was good. And in the morning, I got up and I knew that I needed a little extra time with the Lord and just, just spend some time talking to God about my lack thereof. And I'm grateful. It's not, there was no magical experience. There was no particular warm fuzzies. And yet, as I, as I sat with the Lord and prayed and opened His Word, I sensed the Lord restoring joy. Church, notice the psalmist longs for the revival of joy in his life. He has his eyes set firmly on the steadfast love of the Lord. And in verse 7, we see this reference to the God's love. It's, it's called his hesed love. That's the Hebrew, his hesed love, that, that faithful, loyal, unconditional love of God for his people. It's right here in the middle of the poem. There are 13 verses. Here's verse 7. His hesed love marks the pinnacle of the message in Psalm 85. And, and see, the psalmist knows the, the antidote to despair is not found by, by picking oneself up by, by the bootstraps. It's not found by, by finding that right cocktail of medication and circumstance and, and breathing techniques and, and managing our situation. Friends, the antidote to despair is none other than the steadfast love of our God. Friend, the Lord loves you. He loves you so much. And here's the amazing thing about God's love. And, and the word hesed implies this. It's the closest word in the Old Testament to the word grace. His love for you has nothing to do with your performance for Him. God's love for you has nothing to do with your performance for Him. And so you don't have to prove yourself to God. You can rest in His unfailing and glorious love for you. Don't despair. Receive His hesed love. James Montgomery Boyce says the psalmist does not plead the people's goodness or even their intentions to reform. He doesn't say, God, we're doing our part here. We're working hard. We're getting our, our boxes checked. We're getting our ducks in a row. We're doing what you've asked us to do. So why don't you just throw us a bone here, God? It's not what he does. On the contrary, he acknowledges the justice of God's displeasure. Yeah, God, you had a right to be angry. I get it. Nevertheless, God is unfailing in His love, and it is to this, the mercy of God, that the writer pleads. Never plead your merits before God. <laughs> That's great advice, friends. Never go to God and say, God, look what I've done, you owe me. <laughs> Remember who we're talking to. He says, never plead your merits before God. Plead mercy. 
It's mercy that we need. We need it from first to last, and we need it every single day. And friends, when we begin to grasp the Hesed love of God, the steadfast love of our Savior, and when we begin to become enveloped by His mercy, we begin to appreciate the promise of His peace. Look at verse 8. He says, let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for He will speak peace to His people, to His saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Friends, on on the seventh day, God God rested with His people, and the people experienced Shavat, that, that Sabbath day where shalom, that peace, is most evident. And friends, God will speak peace to His people. That's the promise. Again, Jesus said in the Upper Room Discourse, John 16, 33, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And friends, if you know the story of God, you know that it begins with creation, but it quickly turns to despair, it turns to the fall. And because of the fall of man, because of the rebellion of Adam and Eve, we experience despair in our world. But friends, God comes to remedy the situation, to restore us to the joy of new life in Him. And and so the fall turns to a glorious redemption in Jesus Christ. And yet, though already saved, we await the, the glory of the final consummation of God's unfolding plan. We await that that perfect peace. We await that glorious day that Scott prayed for earlier. And because of the resurrection, we know it's guaranteed, it's coming. We have hope. Friends, in despair, remember God's provision and invite His restoration and revival and then relish in His promise of peace. And don't turn back to folly, verse (laughs) 8. But let them not turn back to folly, the psalmist writes. The Israelites suffered for their rebellion. They suffered for their folly. We need not. Now let me qualify. To be in Christ is to suffer. We read about that all over the New Testament. We read about it even in the Old. Suffering will be a part of the story of the followers of Jesus, this side of eternity. But but suffering for rebellion, (laughs) that need not be. Don't turn back from God's provision. Don't don't reject the Lord. That's folly. Rest in God's peace. Now for the last five verses, the psalm leads us into a couple of incredibly beautiful particulars that I want to highlight for us. What, What does this peace look like? How does it work? And so I want you to listen to the glory of what awaits for the followers of Jesus. Verse 9, Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him, that that glory may dwell in our land. Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him. Friends, recognize the Lord's supply here. What's He supplying? He's supplying salvation. And notice, it's not for everyone. Certainly God's common grace causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust, Matthew 5.45. But but His special grace, His specific salvation, falls on those who fear Him, on on those who turn to Him in faith, on those who believe ultimately in His Son. 
And the reality of our our despair often makes us think that what we need more than anything else is to have more friends if we're in high school or or to be healed of our disease if we're sick or or to be restored in a broken relationship if we're estranged or to have money in our bank account if we're struggling financially or, or to have the Vikings win a Super Bowl if we're living in delirium. Whatever it might be, right? But we know God's supply first comes in the form of that to which we cannot attain. The Scriptures teach that all have fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us. And yet here the goal of salvation is to be restored. Thus God supplies what we need. He supplies the righteousness for us through His Son. He supplies righteousness. Verse 10, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. And church, though we know that our deeds are as filthy rags, Christ's own righteousness fits the bill perfectly. And and, and by believing in Him, His righteousness becomes our righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's an amazing thing. His righteousness is what we call imputed to us. We're covered with His righteousness before God. We're no longer filthy rags. We're dressed in white. We're dressed in garments of Jesus. And that said, without more discussion, it's, it's natural to ask, okay, God, is that it? I mean, I'm grateful for salvation and all. I really am. I know that my future is secure in you, God. But here's my reality. I'm still struggling. I'm still in despair. I'm still experiencing the effects of sin and curse. And I don't know if I can take it much more. What do you do about that, God? And here's where these verses become so incredibly poignant. Listen to them in context. Verses 10 and 11. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Church, this is the promise of God. In God's economy, God's hesed love, His his loyal love, His grace meets His faithfulness. They come together. God's promise and God's provision, righteousness and peace kiss one another. And friends, let's be clear, the ultimate promise of peace is for the future. It is a part of God's supply in the eschaton, in the new heavens, and in the new earth. And there will come a day when Jesus is seated on His throne and we will enjoy both His righteousness and His peace without reservation and without inhibition. And that will be a good day. Verse 12. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Future tense, this is coming. Jesus is coming in the future. We anticipate His coming at Advent. The land will yield its bounty. And yet, know this. Christ has already come. He's already here by His Spirit. Don't believe me? Go back and listen to our messages from the Gospel of John. (laughs) Christ has made Himself available to us in His fullness by His Spirit. It's better this way. 
And we celebrate that, that incarnation of the, the, the second person of the Trinity during this Advent season. And it's in the person of Jesus where righteousness kisses peace, where, where despair gives way to the joy, to, to joy in the loving arms of a father who says, I've got this. I love you. I'm providing for you. It's time to give yourself up to my Hesed love. It's time to rest in what I have for you. I've provided the antidote to your despair. And look at him. Here's my child. Go to the manger. See for yourself. He comes to change the world. He's the Prince of Peace. He comes for you. And see, God has made the ultimate provision for our despair. He sent His Son, the Christ child, God incarnate, to make peace out of our brokenness, to bring joy out of our despair. Verse 13, righteousness will go before Him and make His footsteps away. Friends, righteousness does go before, and His name is Jesus. Church, the Lord has supplied both righteousness and peace for us. In Christ, they kiss. Apart from Christ, the the pursuit of righteousness is cruel and unattainable. You ever tried to, to measure up to God's standard? Have you lived a season of your life saying, okay, if I just do this, if I get this in order, then maybe God will be okay with me? It's a miserable experience. Seeking after God's blessing by performing for God is an endless cycle of miserable frustration. And friends, apart from Christ, the promise of peace in similar fashion, it's shallow. And it's unlasting. The only source of true peace is found in submitting to the kingship and glory and goodness of your Savior, of Jesus. See, in Christ, righteousness and peace come together. They're the antidote to our despair. Would you turn to Him today? As we close our time, I want you to listen to one of the great messianic prophecies in all of the Old Testament. I'm going to go back to the book of Isaiah. And as I read these words, I want you to enjoy considering the place where righteousness kisses peace, where the Messiah comes to save the world. And I want you to rejoice. And so let me encourage you to close your eyes and and just listen as if the Lord were speaking His peace directly over you today. Would you close your eyes? Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. This is out of the New Living Translation. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her that her sad days are gone and her sins are pardoned. Yes, the Lord has punished her twice over for all her sins. Listen, it's the voice of someone shouting, Clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Fill the valleys and level the mountains and hills. Straighten the curves and smooth out the rough places. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all the people will see it together. The Lord has spoken. A voice said, Shout. 
And I asked, what should I shout? Shout that the people are like the grass. Their beauty fades as quickly as the flowers in a field. The grass withers and the flowers fade beneath the breath of the Lord. And so it is with people. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. O Zion, messenger of good news, shout from the mountaintops. Shout it louder, O Jerusalem. Shout and do not be afraid. Tell the towns of Judah, your God is coming. Yes, the sovereign Lord is coming in power. He will rule with a powerful arm. See, he brings his reward with him as he comes. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will carry the lambs in his arms, holding them close to his heart. He will gently lead the mother sheep with their young. Lord, I I believe that there are some here today that are tired, that are struggling, who have hearts that are worn out with despair from the challenges and the pain that this life affords. God, I'm asking you to come in power. I'm asking you to exercise your glory with your sovereign, powerful arm. I'm asking you to bring reward with you as you come to them by your Spirit. Lord, you're the one who feeds your flock like a shepherd. Jesus, you said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and they know me. My Father knows my sheep and they know my Father and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. God, Carry your sheep. Carry those lambs in your arms that need you. Hold them close to your heart. And lead them. And lead them. That mother sheep with their young. God, thank you that you came to bring joy out of despair. To turn our mourning into dancing. And so on this Advent season, we cast ourselves at your feet and we rest in your Hesed love. Thanks for meeting us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray.